0: Welcome to the Weekly Appellate Report for August 30th, 2019. I'm Brian Cardile, and this is the Daily Journal's weekly podcast covering major cases and issues making their way through the appellate courts. Most weeks, we regard cases that have been slowly rising through the court system over a span of years, often, and many times those cases might have years to go still before reaching final resolutions. But this week, we'll be looking at a handful of connected cases traveling at relative warp speed, in judicial terms at least, They are challenges to SB 27, or California's Tax Transparency Bill, which was signed last month by Governor Newsom and which requires presidential candidates in order to appear on California's primary election ballot to release the most recent five years of their federal income tax returns. For those paying only casual attention, there's a presidential election next year and one of its candidates, the Republican incumbent, has been fairly resistant to sharing his tax information with the public. The new law would require him to do so, to hand over by November, those jealously guarded returns in order to appear on the state primary ballot next March. Of course, it would require the same of all other candidates vying for California delegates. A phalanx of attorneys quickly challenged SB 27 in both state and federal court, and we'll speak to a couple of them on today's show. First, we'll hear from Mark Anchor albert of Mark Anchor albert and Associates, who heads one of a handful of federal cases, This one brought on behalf of a California Republican voter. The thrust of Albert's suit is that SB 27 infringes on GOP voters' First Amendment free association rights because it may block them from joining together to vote for the candidate of their choice in the primary. Albert also stresses that California's tax disclosure requirement is an impermissible addition to the very limited presidential qualifications already prescribed in the federal constitution. Those require basically just that a presidential candidate be 35 years old and a native-born citizen. Then we'll hear from Tom Hiltak of Bell McAndrews and Hiltak, LLP in Sacramento, who's pressing a case in California Supreme Court. He represents the California Republican Party and argues the new law would depress Republican voter turnout in the primary, thereby harming GOP candidates in down-ballot races. More critically, he says a section of the state constitution all but forbids a law like SB 27 because that constitutional provision requires that the Secretary of State place on the primary ballot all recognized candidates for the presidential race. That, Hilltag says, would include the race's incumbent, whether or not that candidate decided to keep his personal financial affairs obscured. And finally, we'll hear from a co-author of the legislation, Senator Scott Weiner, who will put in a few good words for the bill and discuss why he thinks it can withstand the array of legal challenges it now faces. For hearing from our guests, though, quick reminder that the Daily Journal and the Weekly Appellate Report are great sources for California CLE credit. We may not be able to do anything about the bar-raising member dues, but we can keep them sufficiently mollified as regards your continuing legal education. So for listeners of the show, it is very easy to claim one hour of California CLE credit. Just go to dailyjournal.com, find the page where this podcast appears. There should be a link there to a short true-false test. Once you've taken that, one hour of credit can be yours. Okay, Mark Anchor albert represents Republican voter Jeffrey Koenig, who says SB27 infringes on his First Amendment right of free association. That suit is before District Judge Morris in England and the Eastern District. Mark joins us now. Mr. Albert, thanks for being here. Thank you so much for having me. I'm honored to be here. You are leading one of a handful of cases in federal court against SB 27. Before diving into uh, the legal questions and the legal claims you bring, could you just sort of describe the case as you see it, the framing that you're hoping to impress upon the federal court about what's at issue here and what's at stake? This
1: case it is not limited just to California. It's, it, this case has national implications, and what we're going to try to impress upon District Court Judge England in Sacramento in the Eastern District, and later on, on an emergency appeal to win or lose to the Ninth Circuit and possibly to the Supreme Court, is that this case presents a unique and pressing constitutional issue of national import and significance because the presidential qualifications clause under the United States Constitution only has three qualifications for president. The person has to be at least 35 years old, a natural-born citizen, and have resided in the United States for for at least the last 14 years. And uh, our uh, position is that the, the tax return production requirement imposed by SB 27 is not really procedural at all. It's a new substantive requirement for admission to the, the opposing party's primary electoral election ballot and that if California could impose this a new condition, all the other 49 states could come up with their own informational requirements uh, causing havoc in national uh, presidential primary elections uh, in violation of the qualifications clause and in violation of my client, my client, a Republican voter, his right, his right to vote for the primary presidential candidate of his choice and his associational rights under the first and 14 amendments to the United States Constitution to associate with other like-minded Republican primary voters to choose the standard-bearer the incumbent President of the United States who best represents their policy preferences. So those arguments are the core constitutional claims that all of the key cases share, and the constitutional issue turns on the interrelationship between the Qualifications Clause in relation to the rights of states to regulate primary elections under the presidential electors clause in the constitution. That's how the states choose their electors. The elections clause, which is how these people uh, choose their legislatures and senators. And the reason that applies is because we already have a lot of case law there. And the question is, does that case law apply by, by similar reasoning in, in the structure of the constitution, presidential elections? And then then the underlying issues between those, the tension between those provisions and the constraints they put on it, are they infringing upon the voting and associational rights of individual voters? And so it's a hot, unique, and pressing constitutional issue. And as I said, I think it's going to be resolved by the
0: Supreme Court. So you, you sort of described two different constitutional prongs here. You're describing one, the state is impermissibly adding on qualifications above and beyond the three listed in the qualifications clause in the, the Constitution, the you know, age and residency and native-born requirements, and then also the First Amendment uh, free association argument. I will take the first one for just a second. So you used a, a keyword in there, I think, when you were describing the argument that this additional requirement, the disclosure of tax returns, is a, a substantive requirement as dis- distinct from a procedural one, because there are ways in which the state's do have requirements aside from the constitutional ones, like, say, uh, certain signatures necessary for independent candidates to access the ballot, and states can decide the timing of primary elections. What separates this requirement from the other ones?
1: The language under which the ballot restrictions have been permitted with respect to state legislative, I mean, uh, senator and congressman elections, they're called time, place, and manner restrictions, and they're permitted... Uh, up to a certain boundary under the elections clause of the Constitution. And the election clause says the states can determine the time, manner, and place of of elections. And so the key case that tested the outer boundary of how far states could go is called the uh, term limits case, which uh, invalidated a a state law that purported to require legislative candidates to list whether or not they supported Uh, term limit restrictions, and the Supreme Court said that 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 violated the outer limit that were implicitly imposed by the election clause. So the structure of the Constitution is that the the elections clause and the presidential electors clause, both of those together, they provide the constitutional source of the state's authority to regulate federal elections. So in in the term limits case, the, the Supreme Court held that the election clause, prohibits, implicitly prohibits states from enacting laws designed to benefit or hinder certain candidates. And here, in this case, what we're saying is that this law is not like other reasonable time, place, and manner restrictions. SB 27, we can is pretextual. And it's supposedly even-handed, a uh, neutral uh, application, because supposedly the Democratic candidate for president would have to turn over his or her tax returns also. we We say that that is a ruse, that that even the legislative history here makes clear that this was targeting President Trump. So we contend that this is a law that invidiously uh, targets for purely and naked partisan purposes, the president and his nearly 5 million California voters. And the purpose is not just to harm the president, but to disenfranchise the California voters. Because if if, if one supermajority party can impose a, a new requirement that if it's not complied with, they can strip the other polit- minority political parties right to have their own presidential candidate on their own primary ballot that in effect disenfranchises the the other party's primary voters right and when that happens takes the wind out of the sails of the of the minority parties They get their enthusiasm wanes it helps the party that's screwing them over in the other party's primary ballot to have the minority party's candidates lose down ballot you see it so once you take the pre- elected president, incumbent president, off the ballot, it just doesn't affect the presidential primary. And it affects voter enthusiasm for the opposing party all the way down the ballot, and that's their objective and their goal. And it's improper, and and we think the Supreme Court, nice Circuit, and N.C. right through it.
0: It does seem pretty undeniable that there are strong arguments. This bill was conceived with a particular person in mind, you know, Trump, who famously has. Withheld to this point against you know about a couple of generations of tradition is his personal income tax returns that I think is almost inarguable that the laws is aimed at him or inspired by him but I mean it does seem also true that um, the argument you mentioned that this requirement would be neutral sort of in the way that time place manner restrictions are neutral they apply to everybody. What is the argument that bests that claim? You know, look, all the candidates, Democratic, Republican, Independent, are going to have to do this, and so it doesn't really disadvantage anyone in particular.
1: Well, first, with Judge England, who, by all accounts, he's very even-handed and super smart. So we'll just start with him, but, it, but we know it's going up. So yeah. there's going to have to be a policy distinction that's going to be made uh, based on the structure of the, the, the operative provisions. You have the interplay of the Presidential Qualifications Clause. The electors clause, because of the precedent established under the term Limit case, right? The electoral uh, clause, which has never been applied to limit the qualifications for a presidential candidate. There's no precedent for that yet, right? And then in relation to the first and 14th Amendment voting and associational rights of primary voters, like my client, Mr. Canning, the policy distinction, which I think we're going to win here, that's different than the election's. Uh, time, place, and manner cases is this, that a presidential candidate election is different. Only the president and the vice president are elected nationally. The election clause cases involve state elections for their own senator or representative, right? This is a national election that uh, is the only national election for the only two offices that are are chosen nationwide. So this type of ballot access restriction uh, has nationwide implications that could affect other states' voting rights for the only national election that occurs every four years. Therefore, it has uniquely important national interests at stake. And that distinguishes it from the other cases. And the reason why the Supreme Court draw a line here, and we hope it starts with District Judge England, is that if, if this type of ballot access restriction Allowed to be imposed by a supermajority party that happens at this time hold the levers of power of state power, then it could open the floodgates uh, in other states to have other political parties impose other restrictions on 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 the minority party's primary election process in those states. So you could have a, a Texas legislation asking for all marital or divorce records or family law records as a condition of being on the primary ballot. The list of conceivable supposedly critical information that voters supposedly should have before casting their vote has no you know logical limit right that's why the line needs to be drawn here and to say that the time place and manner restrictions uh that are applicable to state congressmen and senatorial elections has to be more narrowly applied in in the, in the context of the national election for a presidential candidate in which the qualifications are enumerated and and, and limited in the qualifications clause. So that's the pitch, that presidential elections are
0: different. As I understand it, and correct me if I'm wrong, the the act of of voting itself, that's not viewed as an expression of of free speech. So we're not talking about a a free speech claim, right?
1: Uh, No, it it is a free speech claim. Interestingly, the Supreme Court has said that the right uh, of a candidate to appear on a ballot is not a fundamental right. But the Supreme Court has stated on numerous occasions, in in different contexts, that the individual right of a voter, like my client Jeffrey for to cast his vote, is a fundamental First Amendment right of expression, and and that now that's related to the the, the other fundamental right, which is the associational right, which is the right of people to join together, who have, who are like-minded and share. The same views uh, politically on on different policy issues to choose the standard bearer here, the incumbent president of the United States, who best can promote and express and advance their views. So they're they're interrelated, but they're both uh, the Supreme Court has both said that they are fundamental rights. So what's interesting here, is, although I, I'm part of the Trump team going up and I support the president and the RNC. The the right of my client as an individual voter is the paramount right here. And and not not the right of the president to be on the ballot. Not the right of the Republican Party to say we want. They have associational rights and that are strong rights and the president's rights are, are strong rights, but the core fundamental right undergirding them all is the right of individual voters to vote for who they want and come together to promote that person as their standard bidder. But that's the core First Amendment, Fourteenth 14th Amendment, Fourteenth 14th Amendment fundamental foundational rights at stake here that are, in my view, paramount.
0: The description of you know the the freedom of association and the right to associate with like-minded folks calls to mind in, in this particular context some some high-profile cases that the Supreme Court has heard in the last couple of years. Those relating to uh, to partisan gerrymandering. In those cases, a few of the claims also went along similar tracks that uh, the majority party was drawing congressional district lines or state legislature lines in such a way to maintain their majority and, and so minority party voters claimed their ability to associate was being unduly burdened or diminished or, you know, targeted. You know, I know these are different cases and in, in different sorts of contexts, but both dealing with state's control over its own, you know, elections within its borders. What's the what are the main differences between this case and, and those cases where the Supreme Court did not buy into those lines of argument?
1: The the first distinguishing factor is the same as I said before with regard to the election, time, and place, and manner cases. That, that the gerrymander cases, n- none of them, to the best of my knowledge, deal specifically with ballot access in a presidential primary election. Okay, and that's what makes this case unique and different than those cases. But then even if those cases are ultimately cited by the by California on the grounds that the Supreme Court shouldn't get involved in the political motivations behind these things. And that traditionally in the gerrymander cases, right, the, the federal courts have said that those are purely political questions that only in, in really unusual circumstances are we going to get involved with. My sense is that the reluctance, the trend in the law is for the Supreme Court now and federal courts to start peering behind the curtain and uh, taking a, a much more closer look. And eventually, I don't think it's happened yet, but at some point I think strict scrutiny is going to start to apply because the naked abuse of partisan power to effectively disenfranchise people, I think, has reached its limit. So in, in this case, for example, the Supreme Court has said in other contexts that, in a case called O'Brien, that the, it's not the job of the court to peer behind the statute to Find out if it's driven by a, a partisan political motive, but in two other cases, the court's done that in, in a case called in particular vermillion and grazje those, those two cases the court did look behind it and said, well, when a statute the necessary scope and purpose and effect of a statute is an an invidious partisan one that's discriminatory, the courts can you know while not relying solely on the partisan motive can can see what's really going on there and and overrule it. So one of the arguments I'm making going up, which relates to the gerrymandering cases, is that when something is so obviously targeted for invidious partisan purposes, the court should look behind the supposed even-handed application of the law to both parties when this necessary purpose and effect is to disenfranchise five million voters from the minority party. So just like I think in the future, you're going to see the Supreme Court start taking a closer look and applying a harsher standard, maybe even up to a strict scrutiny at some point, doesn't do it now. On the gerrymandering cases, I think here, we've already made the argument, and I'm going to develop it further, here where where the invidious partisan motive is so obvious, it's even in the legislative written legislative history, that the court can't just close its eyes to that and, and say, well, it seems to be even handed on space when the clear purpose to Harm the president, target the president and his voters, and disenfranchise them. So the necessary purpose and effect of the statute is to do just that. The court, the court should rule this unconstitutional. I'm kind of claiming that argument because that's the one argument. If you read all the different briefs from the president and uh, the RNC and California and Judicial Watch, I'm the only one that makes the uh, pretextual argument and why the court should. Take, a serious look at that, and have that be a basis for the its determination that this SB 27 is unconstitutional under those cases, uh, Gras Jean and Chameleon. So. This is
0: sort of by the by, and our previous governor didn't exactly make that argument that you just made, but there is a previous version of this bill that did go up and was vetoed by you know, Democratic Governor Jerry Brown. You referenced that in your briefing. It, you know, it doesn't mean the law is impermissible or unconstitutional. But I suppose it's suggestive. You know, To what extent do you think that's important to reference?
1: We think it's incredibly important. And, and in fact, in our preliminary injunction motion, on the first prong for preliminary injunction, the likelihood of success, we say that we have a very strong likelihood of success here because the virtually identical, substantively identical version of this very statute was vetoed uh, by Governor Brown. It was, it was called SB 149. It was vetoed just two years ago, right before he left office, uh, on the basis that the California's own legislative council, it's kind of like the Department of Justice Office of Legal Counsel, did an opinion that it was unconstitutional. And uh, since been deep six they hit it. They passed some statute where they said they didn't have to turn it over on freedom of information grounds. But Harmy Dillon found it, and it's attached to a declaration uh, in support of there are RNCs, the Republican National Committee's preliminary injunction motion. So we've got it. So the fact that the independent, nonpartisan uh, brain trust uh, for the California uh, legislative branch, the Office of Legal Counsel, determined that the virtually identical predecessor statute was unconstitutional, I think, if nothing else, illustrates the, the partisan nature of this bill, right? And um, so we think it's very strong and gives good support for us to get this bill through out
0: the pacing of this case is going to be unusually abbreviated, as we've discussed off the, the air. So you, you're having a hearing here just in, in a few weeks, and then the deadline for when the tax disclosures would need to be made to ensure ballot access is not that far in the future we're talking about around Thanksgiving time. So the really the resolution of this case has to come within the next few months, and that could include an appeal potentially to the Supreme Court, as I think you predicted, right?
1: District Court Judge England has set that hearing date on the, on the four motions for a preliminary injunction that have some different arguments, but they all turn on the core constitution issues I've discussed with you. He set the hearing for all four of those motions to be coordinated. So they're all heard at the same time on September 19th at 2 p.m. in courtroom seven in, in the federal court in Sacramento. The, the reply briefs are due. The oppositions are due on September 7th. That would, those would be the oppositions by the, State of California, and our replies are due on September 12th. And then he also, uh, at the request of the president, with my stipulation and the concurrence, even with uh, the concurrence by the uh, Assistant Deputy Attorney General of California, impressed upon his honor the, the exigent timing issues here, and he's promised an issue an order that he's going to issue his ruling not later than September 30th. And what's interesting about this case is normally a preliminary injunction is just that's different than the trial on the merits, right? That's just maintaining the status quo or stopping an emergency until a formal ruling can be made. Here, the merit and the injunction overlap so much that for all purposes and effect, the court's preliminary injunction ruling is going to be it and then it's going to be decided as a matter of law in the court. So what's going to happen, unless one side caves, which I'm not going to cave, but let's say the state loses an injunction issues, if the state doesn't appeal, then it's over, right? But I think given the political climate here and in California, I think Governor Newsom would be under tremendous pressure to fight to to overturn it, right? So no matter win or lose, if if we lose, we're going to appeal, and then it's going to be done on an expedited basis. I mean, on, on the most expedited basis, because SB 27 requires the president turnover turn over his five years of tax returns by November 26. So to if a panel of the Ninth Circuit, you know, hypothetically, an injunction that doesn't issue and it's allowed to stand. And, and we want to get it reversed the pen would have to rule in sufficient time if they will against us that we would have recourse to the Supreme Court before california voters otherwise being disenfranchised right so the ninth circuit appeal will probably be completely done within a month and then uh, win or lose depending on which side wins or loses and the, and the issue is will it will it go to the supremes and it would unless one side gave up and, and so all of that would have to be done in a way that we get finality before the 26th of November. So it's going to be a big fire drill. But, but, all, the, but all the arguments are done now. I mean, there's going to be refinement. The core arguments are there. Uh, I'm the only one that's, in my brief, uh, focused on the pretextual nature and should look behind the even-handedness to see the blatant partisan motive and its impact on voters of so the uh, minority party. And then the uh, Judicial Watch has an equal protection argument. The SB 27 doesn't require writing independent candidates to turn over tax returns, so it's unfair. And the president and his campaign, uh, they make an additional argument that the uh, SB 27's tax return production law is preempted by the federal, uh, election, dis- uh, financial disclosure laws. And then, pardon me, Dylan, uh, and the Republican National Committee also make a, a equal protection argument that I, that I don't make. But the core of all of it, it, as I said, is this issue is, does it violate the qualifications clause, presidential qualifications clause, and does it present an unconstitutional, undue burden on the voting and associational rights of primary voters?
0: A lot of arguments and a lot of cases, so it should be exciting here to keep track of. Uh, but we'll leave it there for now. Uh, Mark Anchor Albert from Mark Anchor Albert and Associates in, in Los Angeles, thanks very much for being on our podcast. I appreciate your time.
1: Thank you so much.
0: a moment from an attorney pressing the state-challenged SB 27 in California Supreme Court, but quickly one other reminder. If you have earned a legal result you are proud of, we'd like to publicize it. Our verdicts and Settlements section comes out each Friday and features dozens of major results from courts around California. That section helps attorneys evaluate their cases, but also if you submit your result for inclusion, it lets you brag a little bit easy to do. Just find the submission form by going to www.dailyjournal.com slash V&S, spelled out, no ampersand, V&S. Okay, Tom Hilltack represents the state Republican Party in a case filed directly with the California Supreme Court. Does the California Constitution prevents the enforcement of a law like SB 27? He joins us now. Tom, thanks for being here. Good morning. You are part of a, a team at your firm bringing this challenge in state court against SB 27. We'll dive into it and parse a few of its arguments, but first tell me just about your plaintiff. So I've spoken, and listeners have heard from a plaintiff that's representing an individual GOP voter. You have a different type of plaintiff. You're representing really the, the party.
2: Yeah, the state Republican Party and its current chair.
0: What exactly is the sort of the harm that you allege that uh, is being suffered or I guess is would imminently be suffered by those plaintiffs? Yeah, I think our,
2: our interest in the, in, in explains in some respects the reason for filing directly in the California State Supreme Court is that in California we've switched to a top two voter nominated primary system um, a number of years ago with the passage of Prop 14 in 2010. And what that means, if folks really haven't paid attention, is that in the primary election for a what is still a partisan office, so a legislative seat, you know, Assembly or Senate, or a congressional seat, or the United States Senate, or or any of the state constitutional officers. At the primary election, the top two vote-getters move on to the general election regardless of their party, which is, you know, a change from the long history of California, where there was the party nominees of usually the two you know, the Democrat and the Republican Party would move on to the general election, even if one of the candidates maybe came in third overall. And so with a top two system, voter turnout is critical to making sure that each party has an opportunity to advance a person to the general election. And so as you might imagine, in an upcoming election where there are anywhere from, I don't know, 10 to 20 candidates running on the Democrat side for president of the United States, and there may be only one or two or three or maybe none, no candidates on the ballot if FSB 27 were um, in place, then, then turnout would be depressed among Republicans in this instance, at least that's our belief that there's long social history to prove that, you know, the top of the ticket does sort of drag voter turnout or affects voter turnout. And so what the the effect of, of SB 27 could be in that situation is not so much affecting what actually happens at the top of the ticket, because I think it's pretty safe to assume that as long as the president is going to be a candidate for re-election, he's likely to be the nominee for re-election, regardless of what California does or doesn't do and whether he's on the ballot or not. But we also have an interest in making sure that our nominees or candidates are able to advance to the general election in down ticket races in you know, assembly seats all over the state of California.
0: That phenomenon that you described, that the possibility of two candidates from the same party getting both nominations to run in in the general election, leaving the the minority party out, that's not theoretical. That that happens with some frequency, right? Yeah, we've had,
2: uh, particularly at the legislative seats, we've had, you know, a number of instances where there were either, either two Democrats advanced to the general or two Republicans advanced to the general, depending on the on the makeup of that district. But particularly in assembly and state senate seats, you know, those races are sometimes decided by hundreds or less than hundreds of votes. So if, if voter turnout is depressed for any reason, and, you know, in the, I'm picking a number in the 27th assembly district, if, if a candidate doesn't advance because 2,000, 3,000 fewer people came out to vote, you know, at the presidential primary... And vote in their race, they may not advance to the general election. So that's that's the party's interest in seeing that SB 27 is not implemented. And and the legal question is is does it comply with the state constitution? That's our, that's the issue that we've raised
1: in our Supreme
0: Court filing. I also just had one question on the procedure. So the, as you mentioned, the petition is filed directly to the California Supreme Court. Is that because of compressed time frame of when this bill would require some action on the part of candidates? Is it because that relief would eventually be sought probably up at the, the state's highest uh, court? Yeah, I
2: think the principal reason for doing so is the um, compressed timetable. Um, you know, SB 27 was fi- was signed at the end of July, the candidates and the ballot Processes start well in advance of an election, so we're talking about a primary election in in early March. But the processes by which we conduct that election start several months in advance of that. And in fact, I think in early November, if you are desiring to have your name placed on the ballot for president in the United States, and you don't believe that the Secretary of State may, for example, select your candidacy to be included on the ballot, you can actually obtain a place on the ballot by circulating petitions among voters. And it's important, it would be important to know what the rules were as early as November to decide whether you were, if you were unwilling to, to release your tax returns mm-hmm. to the Secretary of State for five years, but still wanted to be on the ballot, you'd need to know what the rules are in early November or you know late October. So our, our petition, ask the court to move quickly. And secondarily, I think, as you mentioned, is, you know, there's clearly public interest in the issue. Um, and that's something that the court has considered in the past. And the ability to, you know, obtain appellate relief would be limited because of the tight time frame. So it made sense in our mind to go directly to the state Supreme Court. And,
0: you know, they have a history
2: of, of acting in situations like this that relate to an, an impending election.
0: One other procedural type question is how the state comes to be a a gatekeeper in a situation like this. You know, obviously, California puts forward this public election, this public primary election for the the presidential primary and lots of other public office primaries. In other sense, it seems odd that the state would be able to um, sort of block folks when what we're talking about is the party collaboratively with the public, I suppose, picking its presidential candidate. So, how exactly is it that the state? It is in a position to even do this.
2: Well, with respect to having a role in determining who the nominee is, I think I would agree with you that the state has no interest in doing that, and in fact, any attempt to do so would interfere with the party's associational interest and that of its members. Those claims are being raised in federal actions that were filed, you know, shortly before or after our state Supreme Court case was filed. But in terms of just the mechanics of conducting an election, you know, the state of California and in most states in the country, you have long believed that there was an interest, a public interest in in conducting an election for the benefit of, you could argue, for the parties, because in some instances, these are partisan party nominating processes. Of course, in California, as I mentioned, most of our races are actually not in that vein, and the elections conducted just to identify the top two. But with respect to at least two different um, offices, the president of the United States and what are known as county central committee offices, those are pure party positions, party-nominated offices, and and our constitution was amended to specifically provide that the state would conduct those elections. And that's not unusual. Like I said, most of the states conduct party Even in even states that still have partisan primaries, the state still conducts the elections. But in the area of the presidential nominating process, of course, people are aware of, you know, some states operate by caucus, um, which, you know, those of us who even involved in this don't really know how the caucuses work. But there are other ways to identify the nominee and and award delegates for a party nominating convention and the national conventions that we all watch on TV.
0: Let's dive into the core of the case here. Your argument focuses on a, or invokes a a part of the California Constitution that was added, I believe, in 1972. That sort of refers to what the Secretary of State should or must or has discretion to do when it comes to putting names of folks on the ballot. Uh, Tell me about that constitutional provision.
2: Well, what's most interesting about it is, is its history. So Proposition 4 was um, on the ballot in 1972. It was placed on the ballot by the legislature through a constitutional amendment proposed by the legislature in the year prior, I believe it was SEA 3. But prior to the voters' enactment of Proposition 4, particularly in the presidential area, for about the decade preceding, many times the voters were presented a ballot that did not include the people who were actually running for president. And that was because California had become sort of a, a place where favorite son candidacies were pretty common. So what that means is, so I'll take give you an example. In 1960, Pat Brown was the governor of the state of California. John Kennedy was running for president. Hubert Humphrey was running for president. I believe Lyndon Johnson was running for president. And in that election in 1960, in the primary on the Democrat side, the only candidate that people could vote for was Pat Brown because he wanted to be the favorite nominee, not because he was running for president, but because he wanted to control the delegates at the Democratic National Convention in case it became a brokered convention to gain, you know, some benefit for either himself or or the state of California or in some you know some form or fashion. But it was a basically a political game of obtaining sort of leverage within the nominating process. That was duplicated years later when then-Governor Ronald Reagan in, I believe it's 1968, similarly was the favorite son nominee of the state of California. And Richard Nixon and I think Rockefeller's name were not on the ballots in California. And that was sort of the tipping point. It was like, by the time we got to the 1968 election, you know, the legislature had concluded that, you know, this is not what we intended here we want we want the voters of california to have a say in in voting on the candidates who are actually running for president of the united states and that we should not allow our ballots to be used in this way and so that was the genesis of proposition 4 and the language of that or the mechanism that it was it employed was to to have the legislature provide for a what they called at the time an open presidential primary And that term basically meant that the ballot would be open to everybody who was running for president, and that the voters would be able to select from among all of those people running for president, and that the method that we would identify who those people were would be determined by the Secretary of State. And he would identify, he or she would identify the recognized candidates that were running for the office throughout the nation or running in California, and in the event they excluded someone, a person could have their name placed on the ballot by petition, by circulating petitions among the voters. And if the Secretary of State had included someone who did not want to be a candidate for President of the United States, or had maybe withdrawn their candidacy between the time the Secretary of State had identified them and the time of the election, they could then file an affidavit and say they were not a candidate and could have their name withdrawn from the ballot. So that was a process that was approved by the people through Proposition 4 in 1972, and is largely unchanged today. That's the language that exists today. And so from that point forward, a Secretary of State's office would do just as the Constitution provides. It would, you know, scour the press clippings, look at who was on ballots in other states, look at who had been surveyed and polling data as as viable candidates, look who had created campaign committees to run for office as as president. Maybe they qualified for federal matching funds, which is a provision under federal law that, you know, decades ago almost all the candidates for president took advantage of the matching funds program, but more recently nobody does. And they would consult with the parties themselves and say, hey, here's the list that we have that we think who are running for president. Are we missing anybody? And if the party thought they were missing anybody, that they would then take that list. And and if you look back over the last, you know, 40 years, the provision did exactly as it was intended to do. There were, you know, most elections, there are numerous people who are running for president of the United States that, you know, some may say, well, well, they're not really seriously running, but they were running. And they were candidates. Their names were on ballots in other states. They had all the indicia of running for president. And and it really wasn't for the Secretary of State to decide that they weren't a credible candidate. They were just a candidate. And so their names were placed on the ballot. And so that's until the enactment of SB 27, that process worked just fine.
0: So as you describe it, it sort of sounds like that proposition might have been – Enacted with something like SB 27 in mind, some sort of unnecessary filter applied to the the presidential primary election process.
2: I don't think so, because I think SB 27's failure is that it's more of a roadblock to. It's more. It's more of a requirement to to become a candidate rather than an identification of items that might suggest that you are or are not a legitimate candidate for president of the United States. So at the same time SB 27 was enacted, another bill, SB 505, was also enacted and signed by the governor as an urgency bill. And it actually imposed some of those criteria that I just sort of described that the Secretary of State had been using over the last 40 years. I think it has some Is it is of self dubious constitutionality and that I believe the constitution specifically designates the authority solely and exclusively in the Secretary of State to make these determinations without the assistance or guidance of the legislature. But in terms of the current dispute, you know, the constitutionality of S B five oh five is really not relevant and it doesn't it would not work as a roadblock in the way that s b twenty seven does the way s b twenty seven is is drafted is is that the Secretary of State is prohibited by the legislative act from putting a name on a ballot even if they meet all any other criteria that might be applied by the Secretary of State and is clearly a recognized candidate if that candidate has refused to to provide five years' worth of tax returns and in our belief that you know it's not even necessarily that you focus on the current dispute of the the incumbent president who's been so far unwilling to release his personal income tax returns. Um, and he's not alone in that, by the way. There's a long history of people declining to do that, including the former governor immediately who vetoed prior versions of SB 27. Governor Brown had not ever released his personal income tax returns in his second run for governor. Um, some of the current presidential candidates have not made full release of their tax returns. But but it creates a situation where it defeats the concept of of an open presidential primary, where the goal is to place the name of everybody who's really running for president on the ballot. So you could take an example, you know, forgetting President Trump, but you could take an example on the Democratic side, for example, where there are a dozen or more candidates presently running for president. And California is a really expensive state to campaign in, and if you're a you know a mid-level, maybe you look at the the debates that they've been having on the Democrat side. You know they have the, the sort of the grown-up table and the kids table, <laughs> or they have, and you're aspiring to move up to the to the grown-up table debate. And there's a lot of factors that go into that, including you know how are you doing in the in the public opinion polls how are you doing fundraising how much money do you have and once these primaries start you know how are you doing in the primaries so let's say you're a middle-rung candidate running on the democrat side and you look at california and you don't believe you can afford to campaign there um you look at how much money you have and you say gosh that's you know california's the size of five states in some instances maybe we'd be better off Competing hard in other states where we have a shot of being, you know, maybe in the top two or three or four candidates at the end of the day. But if in California, because we can't afford to run, we may be at the at the bottom level, and or maybe we'll even come in last. But there's actually a consequence to coming in last. One is it, you know it takes a lot of the wind out of your sails, but it also might keep you from, you know, making the next debate stage that you are hoping to do. It might affect your fundraising certainly would affect your cash on hand. But you also don't want to file an affidavit that says you're not a candidate running for president because you are a candidate running for president. So how could you keep your name off the California ballot with SB 27? Well, you just don't file your tax returns. And so it allows sort of the gameplay that that Prop 4 in 1972 was designed to, to prohibit. I
0: want to try and just flesh out the main counter argument that has been now put into a, a responsive filing by the Secretary of State sounds like the argument is that, you know, the provision does, even if it limits the discretion, it grants some discretion to the Secretary of State to identify those recognized candidates. And also, it I think the argument suggests that the Secretary of State can sort of do both, can put on all of the recognized candidates, but also just the ones that have Met the legal requirements, and now SB twenty seven would be a legal requirement, and so the two ideas aren't totally incompatible. Is that the argument as you read it, or is it something else?
2: Yeah, it's it's one of them, but it doesn't it doesn't stand up to the words of the Constitution. So where the words of the Constitution are are pretty specific and direct, in that is a, it is a Secretary of State's job and nobody else's job to identify the candidates who are recognized as running for president of the United States, and Recognition does not mean that you have legally complied with whatever the state of California has decided you shall comply with, and some of that I think can leak over into sort of the federal claims, where where under the the federal lawsuits have been filed, um, and, and frankly the president has has filed a lawsuit essentially saying that the qualifications for office are established in the U.S. Constitution and they cannot be. Changed by state law, which I think is a pretty strong legal argument, and I suspect at the end of the day he'll win that argument. But I think for our purposes, it's essentially the same the same theory, which is is that it's not for the state to decide what recognized means by imposing legal impediments to to running for president of the United States, and that it's the Secretary of State's duty to identify those people. And if you think about you know, just the selection by the Secretary of State on the one hand. But the other is is that the Constitution specifically says that if you qualify via petition, you also can have your name placed on the ballot, but the Constitution doesn't say you can you have to qualify by petition plus whatever other rules we impose that might inhibit your ability to have your name placed on the ballot. So I, I don't think that argument fits with the actual text of Prop four.
0: We mentioned at the top that this case would sort of take place on a fairly compressed timeline. So we should expect to hear something from the California Supreme Court in terms of a final decision within the next couple of months, right?
2: Yeah, I think the only wild card would be if something happens on the, in the federal litigation. Um, the court was definitely interested in knowing the progress of the federal lawsuits and asked the Attorney General to keep it apprised of any developments in that regard. So I wonder what the court would do if, for example, an injunction was issued at the, in the federal courts prohibiting the application of SB 27 in the current election and whether it might decide that it didn't need to move so quickly and, and might it might hold an oral argument at, at a, at a po- later point in time. But it certainly set itself up to have oral argument in advance of you know, that early November deadline because it called for pretty Expedited briefing on the matter, and so our expectation and hope is is that the court will take this matter up as quickly as possible and and rule in our favor.
0: Uh, Tom Hilltech, uh, Bill McAndrews, Hilltech, thanks very much for being on the show. I appreciate it. My pleasure. one more guest to bring you, but one other quick reminder, don't forget that this show can be found both on our website, dailyjournal.com, but more easily it can be found on the go. Search Weekly Appellate Report or Daily Journal on your mobile devices podcast app and take a listen to us there. And if you like the show, share it with a few folks. Okay, now State Senator Scott Wiener, co-authored SB27, and is here now to put in a few good words on its behalf. Senator Wiener, thanks for being here. Uh, thank you for having me. Okay, so our listeners have just heard from two challengers to SB 27 describe its purpose as um, invidious or even anti-democratic. You co-authored the bill. Uh, How would you describe its purpose? SB
3: 27 is uh, highly uh, democratic. It has to do with uh, transparency and assuring that when people are electing the most powerful human being on the planet, uh, i.e. a president, that we know uh, about this person's finances and whether he or she has uh, potentially very damaging conflicts of interest. Uh, And I think it's important to step back here. For 30, 40, 50 years, uh, presidential candidates have been disclosing their tax returns. It's a pro forma uh, thing. Uh, it's not controversial. Republicans have done it, Democrats, everyone. And I think the American people just assumed that it was required because this tradition was so firmly uh, ensconced in our electoral process. And then what Donald Trump showed, and, and this bill is not about Donald Trump, it's about all presidential candidates now and in the future, uh, but but Donald Trump was the one who exposed to many people the reality that this isn't required, that this is simply something that presidential candidates automatically do, but it's not required. And and so for a lot of people, it was horrifying that someone with potentially bad conflicts of interest could be elected president without having to, to disclose any information about his finances. That was horrifying and is horrifying to many people and it undermines democracy. So it exposed this loophole, and SB 27 simply closes it. All it does is to say, if you want to appear on the primary ballot, you have to disclose five years worth of tax returns. Just like you have to fill out other paperwork and provide information about yourself in order to file to run or collect signatures or pay a fee, this is simply another administrative step, and it's totally uh, within our authority uh, and it doesn't prevent anyone from being on the ballot.
0: You, you referenced the Republican and incumbent for President Donald Trump as a necessary antecedent to this bill coming to be, um, if not its, you know, target. But I think that's one thing that sort of hangs people up is that it might feel this bill might have sort of a, a bill of attainder sort of flavor to it, that it, it seems, uh, you know, designed to sort of affect an individual person I e I, I, Donald Trump. What's your response to, to that sort of uh, bit of concern? Yeah, I
3: mean, Donald Trump happens to be the person who exposed this gap in the law. Uh, he and he did it in a very grand way, which is his style. Uh, and, and so, yes, he's the one who flushed this out and alerted people, uh, and 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 I think informed us that this tradition needs to be, well, we never thought that anyone would be so brazen as to say, I'm not gonna disclose my tax return. And so there was never really a need to put it in the, in the law, but he, he happened to be the one who, who said, I'm gonna violate this tradition, and uh, got people thinking, well, maybe this should be in the law. So it's not about him, even though he's the one who violated the tradition and, and flushed the issue out. Uh, Donald Trump is going to be on the ballot one more time. Uh, he, you know, I don't, I don't think anyone uh, really thinks he's going to win California. So uh, frankly, this is not going to, even, even if he were not to appear on the ballot in California, it's not going to affect anything most likely about the next election because he's not going to win California. Uh, and so this is not like, Oh, we're going to tank Donald Trump's reelection. That's not what this is about. We want him to simply disclose his tax returns and appear on the ballot. But even if he didn't, um, it's most likely, overwhelmingly likely, that, unlikely that it's not going to affect anything about the next election. This is really about the future when Donald Trump won't be on the ballot anymore and making sure that future Democrats, Republicans and others who run don't start thinking, well, I don't really have to disclose my tax returns because, you know, nothing's going to happen. Uh, and so this is more about the future than next year's election, quite frankly.
0: What about concerns that run along these lines that, you know, the, the founders in drafting the Constitution created a pretty limited set of qualifications for presidential candidates? Basically, the two that sort of matter at this point is be 35 and a native-born citizen. Um, and so this sort of graphs on an additional substantive requirement that, you know, the founders thought unnecessary. What's your response to that sort of concern?
3: Right. This is SB27 does not create a new uh, quote-unquote qualification to run. Absolutely, the Constitution uh, has a very specific set of what of qualifications. You need to be uh, a citizen who was born a citizen in the country. You have to be at least thirty-five years old. We're not adding a qualification. The Constitution does not prevent states from. Requiring administrative steps to appear on the ballot. Uh, for example, and, and uh, you, you have to fill out a form, you have know, to provide your name and basic information about your campaign. You have to either pay a fee or collect signatures. There are various administrative requirements, paperwork that, that are not qualifications and that are completely kosher under the Constitution. SB 27, it's not a qualification. It's simply an additional administrative piece of information you have to provide, five years' worth of tax returns. That is absolutely not a qualification. It's simply an administrative step.
0: One other concern related to that, that reference, I think, by our first guest was that um, sort of describing the bill that way and, and and describing the power of states to add administrative steps along the way sort of uh, you know creates... The slippery slope argument, whereby, you know, what's the logical limit to the administrative type steps that could be created? Like, could states, uh, you know, put a requirement that you disclose your birth certificate, or say, in particularly religious states, that you could disclose marital infidelities or things like that? I mean, what's the argument against the slippery slope claim?
3: Uh, You know, you can always make a claim that states are going to be putting, you know, an infinite number of paperwork uh, requirements uh, and, you know, you can always make that argument to take it to the extreme. Uh, the fact that states haven't been doing that, uh, and this is simply one basic piece of information, and I think it's so important for people to understand, we're not coming out of left field. We're not saying we're gonna think up a random uh, piece of research or information that you have to uh, provide, um, or all we're doing is saying you need to provide what presidential candidates have been providing for half a century, right? This is not a new random thing out of left field. This is something that presidential candidates have been doing for a very, very long time, uh, and voters have been relying on this tradition. So it's really taking a long-standing tradition uh, and and making it a, a requirement, an administrative requirement, and it's very simple and straightforward. There's no Uh, Judgment required. It's like you have your tax returns. You just photocopy them. You redact out the personal information that the law allows. We don't want people to know people's home address or uh, social security number, for example. And then you provide it. Very, very simple and straightforward.
0: Uh, Just one last one about the the core state challenge. Um, That invokes a California constitutional provision that um, Mm -hmm. basically says the Secretary of State has to put on the ballot sort of all recognized candidates, and so that argument goes that the incumbent would certainly be a nationally recognized candidate, and so that would seem to preclude SB 27 from really taking effect. You know, what's the response to to that sort of argument? Well,
3: yeah, so that that's the argument that we have an open primary in uh, California, and so the Secretary of State puts everyone on the ballot. But that ballot measure, for example, if someone were to come forward and say, you have to put me on the ballot, even though I refuse to even fill out a basic form with, you know, my contact information and my campaign information. People still have to, to fill out paperwork to appear on the ballot. You can't just walk into the secretary of state's office and say, my name is Scott Wiener. Put me on the ballot. And, and, and that voter measure for the open primary requires you to do so. That's No one would say that that's a reasonable argument. Uh, even under that ballot measure, the state requires people to take basic administrative steps to provide basic information in order for the Secretary of State to put your name on the ballot. We're simply adding one more very simple, easy, basic administrative step. So I don't buy the argument that that ballot measure somehow precludes us From adding this administrative step. They'll make that argument in court and they're entitled to do it. They have every right in the world to raise it. It just doesn't strike me as a very strong argument.
0: I will send it to Scott Wiener. Thanks for your time. Thank you so much. Okay, that's our show for August 30th, 2019. Thanks for more time to all three of my guests, Mark Anker-Albert, Tom Hiltek, and Senator Scott Wiener. Thanks also to my production staff here, principally Henrik Nilsson and Brian Cardile. Look forward to speaking to you next Friday. Have a great week.